All right, well, if you have 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, let's find that in our Bible or however else you access the Scripture, and we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll get underway with today's lesson. Oh, Lord in heaven, we do thank you for the special privilege it is to be in the house of the Lord. And Father, as we think about the world at large, we realize that there are many who do not have the privileges that we have or who have some type of government repression or other situation that uh, there are concerns, even fears sometimes when believers meet together. And uh, we take so much for granted here in our country. And so we're grateful. We just want to obey what it tells us there in Ephesians chapter 4 about redeeming the time, knowing that the days are evil, and we can certainly see that the days are evil, and we have this opportunity now today to gather around your word, both in ABF and in the, the other services of the day. Lord, I pray you'll bless especially our pastor today as he brings God's word to us. We just uh, have hungry hearts, and we have needy lives, and we want to make that confession to you right at the very outset of this day, because we have come in order that you might minister to us. Help us also to find ways to try to minister to others. But now I pray for this class. I pray also for, for Ron and Patrick as they teach and for any of the other classes here for Sunday school time, that you'll bless each teacher and uh, give to each of us the ability just to put aside all the cares and distractions and maybe even some of the things we greatly look forward to later in the day, but we don't need to be thinking so much about them now. Just help us to be able to focus on your word. And I pray, Father, that you will uh, guide my speech, help me to be a blessing to people today, help me to say what needs to be said and not to say anything that doesn't need to be said, and that uh, you'll give just the ability for the word of God to make an application and uh, be a devotional help to each person in the class today. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's uh, read our verses for today, if you don't mind. We're coming down to verse number 10. And uh, so let's start reading there, and I think what I'm going to do is read the entire section. I'll do that this week and next week. It'll take us a minute or two longer, but we don't want to give, give short shrift to God's Word. So we come to verse 10, and it says this, And especially those who indulge in the defiling passion, uh, in the lust of defiling passion, and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who barely are barely escaping from those who live in error. 
They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than, uh, for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. What do you think about that? What a passage that is. Now you might notice up at the top of the outline that I have titled this Rotten Apples. And although I would confess to enjoying a title occasionally that has a little color to it, there's more going on in the choice of the title than just that. I want you to refer back to something that we saw in the beginning with 2 Peter. Do you remember how in chapter 1 where he was talking about the idea of the faith given and being grounded in the faith, down in verse 4, he makes the statement, uh, let's look at verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. So this is kind of the Christian counterpart to what we're seeing in chapter 2. Here's what true fruitfulness is life, like in the life of a believer. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, take a look at the result. They keep you from being ineffective or, watch that, unfruitful. And thinking about the fact that Jesus said, right, we can't necessarily see the heart and always make a final judgment about spiritual matters going on in the life, he did say, by their fruits ye shall know them. So, Peter goes on to suggest that these are the things that certainly indicate the work of God, the genuine work of God in the heart of someone who's really been converted. He says in verse number uh, 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So when we see these things which are not natural, in other words, the old man who is corrupt according to deceitful lust just does not produce these types of things, but the Spirit of God works these things in our hearts and lives as we grow in this full knowledge, this intimate knowledge that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, quite the opposite of that, you see these false teachers, and I, I, I mentioned that I called uh, this particular chapter the centerpiece because you have the faith given, in chapter 1, you have the faith defended in chapter 3, but in the middle, you have the faith attacked. And we know that Second Peter was written to, to deal with the problem of these false teachers, so this is really where we see Peter doing the heavy lifting, uh, exposing these people, both their deeds and the judgment that awaits them. So what I call this the centerpiece of the centerpiece, verses 10 through 22. I mean, have you ever had something before that was concentrated? You get something that's concentrated. The other week I went to Lowe's and I was trying to get some stuff that I've used before that's proven effective. Yes, there is actually something that will kill kudzu. It's not an atomic blast either. And I was looking for this particular product and they didn't have one of those lazy man things, you know, where it's got the battery and the sprayer and that would have tempted me. You pay more every time you buy those, I hope you're aware. 
But a lady came, and I was going to use the one that I had at home. But a lady came, and she said, well, I can't find that. The inventory says we have it, but I can't find it. And uh, she said, but here, here's the concentrated version. So I looked at that thing and saw that I'd get way, way more for a less price by buying that. So I, since I had the sp a sprayer at home, I bought it. Concentrated. That's what's going on here. I mean, you can tell that even from just reading the English. But boy, I'll tell you, if you tangle with this in the original language, you will really see some interesting things going on. I mean, Peter just really does a number on giving us uh, the information here about the deeds. And then there's a, also quite an emphasis on the consequences of these deeds on the part of these false teachers. I want to show you something else, because I pointed this out last time, how the last verse of the section before sort of sets the stage for where we are in the section that follows. For example, back up to verse number three, and it says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation, notice that, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then he goes on to give those three illustrations, beginning in verse four, running down through verse nine. Now notice there's a similarity between three and nine, because in verse nine, he ends up by making this statement. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteousness under what? Punishment. And we saw condemnation up in verse number nine, in, or in verse number three. In this verse, we see under punishment until the day of judgment. So now we're going to get more information on this because as I mentioned here, Peter has already assured his readers twice, those two verses we just looked at, that, that judgment is coming on these people for their deeds. And now he begins to demonstrate this. And the way I've chosen to, art, to organize this, I, I hope you'll be able to notice this point number four here. What I'm looking at is this. This judgment unfolds, and I'm not saying that this way of presenting it is the only way to do it. My gracious, I've done it myself differently before. But what I would like to do this morning is simply point you to what I have called four stunning reversals that God brings about. Ultimately, I think the practical takeaway as we observe these is to realize you cannot play the sin game and win. You simply cannot play with sin. We, we know what it says, don't we, in Galatians chapter 6 about whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. That's an established law of God, and you cannot contravene that law. And so these people who flaunt themselves, these people who are involved in all of these things, you know, they have a, a bravado that they put on. But I'm telling you folks, um, that's a fool's errand because it ends in a place, even in this life, it brings about consequences, but in the life to come, it brings about. And so we're, we're actually going to be able to see how God honors his own truth. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. I have a little anecdote for you I thought you might enjoy hearing, and I don't want anybody who sells cars or, or does that for a living to take any offense, so I'll be very careful how I say this, because I'm sure every profession has its rotten apples. But I remember years ago, this will date me somewhat, but I remember years ago when my parents had made the decision to buy some property outside Charleston and, and have a place for weekends and summer and this type of thing. And I suppose you could call it like a little farmette is kind of how we, we developed it because it, it had a tidal creek and that was my dad's thing and, and us boys, we enjoyed the boats and swimming and 
all that kind of thing, so that was great. My mom was into horses, as was I, so we had horses there. And so we kind of realized as all of this evolved and developed, you know what, um, we're going to need a pickup truck. <laughs> we, we had not had one heretofore, and so uh, we finally decided, okay, we have two cars or whatever, we're going to trade one, pick the one that's kind of on the way out, so to speak. Well, that was a 1963 Chevy Biscayne. I'm just looking to see if anybody smiles. Anybody can remember that? Yeah, okay, so several people put their hands up. And, you know, I mean, that car, I mean, it ran well. It did a lot of good work for us. It had a, a six-cylinder motor in it and all that kind of thing. And I can remember going on family trips in that car and all that kind of thing. So we got down to what in those days, probably not even there anymore, in North Charleston was Burnside Dodge. And we pulled into that place. We found this Dodge pickup truck and decided we'd buy that. And uh, so we got ready to make the deal. So we have a trade, and the, you know they come out and they look at the thing and does it run and whatever. And sometimes they drive them, sometimes anymore. I don't even think they care. But so they they you know said okay fine and here's what we'll give you for the car and the deal had been made and so forth. And they had it pulled up there. Sometimes you know like you pull a car in where the guy is going to do the service and he takes your name and your information and what are we doing for you today, sir, and all that kind of stuff. And he got, it, it, it turned out this guy was the sales manager. And he got in the car and when he got in the car, he put his foot down on the floorboard on the driver's side and his foot went right through to the concrete below. And he uttered forth, I can't repeat, about how this car, and my dad was just grinning from ear to ear, and he said, yeah, you just have to run a little faster to keep up with it. <laughs> well, what the deal was, that wasn't really meant to happen, but the fact that it did happen gave my dad no end of delight, because we knew that problem existed with the car, it had rusted out. I just had a piece of plywood under there, under the floor, floor mat to kind of keep it in place. And somehow it had become dislodged so that he put his foot in just the right place and it went right through. And so my dad was grinning from ear to ear because here was an opportunity to put one over on somebody that's all the time putting it over on other people. And so he had that little quip that he came, that was not pre-planned. Pre my dad was very capable of those kinds of things. But you know, our way of saying that today sometimes would be another little saying, what goes around comes around. And that's what you're going to see with these things. And so the first one that we're going to look at, we're only going to look at two today, and uh, we'll probably have our hands full just with getting through this. But um, the first of them is the destroyers are destroyed. Do you see what I'm talking about? You see how what that is saying by the use of the passive voice is that the people who are actively engaged in being destructive, these false teachers, ultimately become the victims of what they are doing to other people. Where do we see that? It's all the way at the end of verse 12. So let's look at that. That's the section that we're going to be in with this point, verses 10 through 12. But let's just see it so that you see where I'm getting this point. All right, at the end of verse 12, it says this will also be destroyed in their destruction. Think about that. Now let's try to work towards that point. Since now we've seen where it is and it's at the end of the section that we're on with this particular point, let's try to... So Peter has consistently talked about 
the moral abandon of these false teachers. And I've, I've tried to illustrate that for you. It's, it's easy to mouth the words moral abandon, but what's involved in that's not pretty. And we saw that before. We've seen that consistently. You see more of it even in the verses that we read today. In verse 2, he talks about this. Many will follow their sensuality. There's that moral abandon, that word in in Greek that I think moral abandon captures the sense of fairly well. In verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So Peter has been calling this out from the very beginning. But now it's kind of interesting. As we get deeper into this, and it gets more concentrated, and he gives us more of the ideas that are involved in their sins and the, and the outworking of the consequences of their sins, we begin to see more. And I guess what I would say to you about this thought that I'm going to introduce now is, you know, some things are symptomatic and you don't always get to the underlying problem. You see the outward things, which are the symptoms. But sometimes what you have to do is pray for a more careful spiritual analysis to understand what is really the problem that this person has. This to me is really interesting because Peter points to authority as being that underlying issue. So I just want to pause for a moment. Think about how many times in our own lives and think about as you observe life, whether it's on the national scene or in families or sometimes in churches, how many times is it that the problems that we experience in those contexts are because people have problems with authority? And I have often observed that sometimes when those problems carry over into adult life, it's because they were never resolved earlier in life. We never really figured out how to relate to authority, and so it keeps playing it out as we get older and we have problems in the workplace because we don't know how to deal with authority. We have problems in church because we don't know how to deal with authority. And granted, sometimes the authority can be a bit of a problem if it's heavy-handed, but you see the point that I'm getting at here. Well, where does authority come up? It's in this verse. He says, and especially, that word especially is the idea, we, we might say particularly. So he's going to hone in now on these people. And he says, okay, God's judgment is a general principle, but I'm going to talk to you particularly about the situation with these false teachers and what they do, those who indulge in the uh, lusts of defiling passion. And look at this, and despise authority. So authority comes from a word that's related to the word for Lord in the New Testament. Anytime you see in the New Testament Lord, almost exclusively that's a translation of this word kurios here, translated Lord, and so you see the other word, even if you just look at the English letters, you can see, at the transliterated letters, you can see that th those, those two terms are related. And so if kurios means Lord, the other word simply means lordship. It's the essential quality that a Lord has. He has the essential quality of authority. Now there's a lot of discussion about this. What's he referring to? Kind of interesting, the King James translates government. That would be one application of this. But other people think that it refers to angelic beings, and there's some basis for that in the context, because obviously the idea of angels comes up. It might be that it comes up a little bit more obviously in the next term that we're going to look at, the glorious ones. But I think I have these verses here for you where you can at least see this, where 
Uh, let's look at the Colossians verse. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And many people feel that what you have here is a reference to orders of angelic beings. And so if that's the case, then it's possible that you have a reference in this term authority to that. Uh, but it's also a possibility that it's a reference back to the Lord himself, because if you look at verse number one, it says, but false prophets arose among the people just as there will be, and it gets to the end of the verse, even denying the master. Now it's true, that's despotes, that's not kurios, and I pointed that out to you. But it's interesting that when you look at the Jude cross-reference, so Jude 4, I don't have that verse up, but it says this, well it would help if I wouldn't turn to 1 John, uh, Jude says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord, uh, the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, uh, you know what? I, it's not necessary for us to solve this. Commentators regularly uh, espouse what they think is the best position here. Just wanted to throw the ideas out for you to think about a little bit. However, when you get to the next term, so what we need to do is read down a little further in the verse, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, what's that talking about? Here I think you probably are. I'll, I'll venture out to say this, and if, if you disagree, that's fine. It's not a problem. There are some different ideas about this. Some people think that the glorious ones there is a reference to church authorities makes me a little uncomfortable because I'm not really aware of any other place in the New Testament that would describe church leaders, even apostles, as glorious ones. That, that makes me just a little uncomfortable, uh, especially when you realize that the actual word is the word for glory. Doxa in Greek is a word for glory, and that just to me sounds like something that's a little foreign to the context of how the New Testament, even Peter who when he writes in 1 Peter, remember 1 Peter chapter 1, he calls himself a fellow elder. He doesn't say I'm one of the glorious ones. That makes me a little uncomfortable. I would rather take the contextual flavor of this, which I think argues on behalf of this being a reference to angels. And uh, of course, you see that clearly enough in what goes on in the next verse. But if you read the Jude passage, and I think actually I do have that verse for you. Jude 8 and 9, yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, so there's that, and right in the next mouthful, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. All right, well, when we go back to our text, that's the very next thing that we come in contact with. It's kind of interesting that if... Uh, as we read on in those verses there, um, verse number 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So I, I rather believe that this is talking about that, but I'll have to say, because if you have, you know, your, your wheels are turning and you're saying, okay, yeah, I can understand what you're saying, but where do angels come into this? And you know, folks, the truth of the matter is, is we don't necessarily have every detail about these people. Obviously, when Peter wrote to his audience, they would have been intimately acquainted with who these people were, what they were teaching, 
But I've told you before that when you start talking about Gnosticism, it's like you have a, a basket of ideas, and not all people that you might say, well, their, their, their problems were with respect to Gnostic heresy. It wasn't even fully developed as we think of it now. In the first century, it was more uh, fully developed in the second century, but every time you have an iteration doesn't necessarily mean you have the whole basket, right? So what I'm going to confess to you now is, is I think that even though we can get some idea of what's going on here, it would be really nice if we knew what they do when they read it. It's not like we're disenfranchised. It's not like we can't get the, 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 the benefit of the spiritual principles that are here but I think it behooves us just to be honest when we don't know every detail that we might like to know and tell people that, do the best we can with a passage. Here's an interesting thought for you that I have here under point B. If the incident in verse 4, all right, that was the reference to, let's look back up of it, that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If, in fact, the interpretation, as I mentioned before of that, that relates it to that event in Genesis 6-4 where the sons of God intermingled with the daughters of men, remember that? If, in fact, it does relate to that, some people posit the idea that it might be that this idea of defaming the angels has to do with using them as a justification for what they're doing. The false teachers are doing. So the idea would come out this way, well, the angels did that, which of course would be a complete turning on its head because the Bible condemns that if that is in fact the right interpretation of that verse. So I don't know all there is to know about this. What do you think about that? <laughs> Your teacher just told you, I, I don't know everything there is to know about this, but I can get the gist of what's going on, but we do need to keep moving. So. In any event, we're not, as I say, we're not disenfranchised. The argument is abundantly clear. What's Peter saying? He said, if the angels don't even do this, if the angels have such a care when they're in God's presence, my expression for it is they mind their manners. I mean, even, even angels that are fully able to access God's presence, unfallen angels, there's a certain way in which they conduct themselves in the presence of God. This sort of gets back a little bit to what we were talking about here on Wednesday night, hallowed be thy name. And when you go back to that example in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees that vision of the Lord, you know what I'm talking about? What are the seraphims saying? What are these angelic creatures saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We're not going to enter into any debate about what is the primary attribute of God, but one thing's for sure. You look at any experience, whether it's Moses, the Apostle John, or anybody else, who came into contact with God's presence, there is an immediate response to God's holiness. Because he is and we aren't. And so the angels conduct themselves in an incredibly exemplary way that they would be in a much better position to condemn other angels who did something that was wrong and complain about their activities in the earth. Wouldn't it be nice, you know, if Michael, you, you think to yourself, Michael goes up there and says, Lord, these guys, look at what they're doing. These guys that are in charge of Washington, look at what they're doing. They're causing havoc in the world. But you know, that's not Michael's business, really. I mean, that's God's business, right? So they don't do that. 
They conduct themselves, I haven't been there to know it all, but I just see what this says. They don't do it. And, and if it's inappropriate for angels to do it, how much more is it inappropriate for these false teachers to be doing that? That's the argument that's going on in the passage. But we want to come back to our point because otherwise time will get away from us. Ultimately, what Peter is saying is, okay, those who have been destructive, and are they destructive? This is kind of a word that Peter loves. It's, it's all through this thing. Look back at the end of verse number one. Denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and they are secretly bringing in destructive heresies. So when God in heaven looks down at his church, he doesn't miss, nor does he take lightly people who cause destruction in his work. It's all under his control, yes. Nothing's ever out of control with God. God doesn't have plan B. Wouldn't that be nice? God doesn't need plan B. Plan A is always functioning exactly like God plans it to happen. However, people who somehow are ordained to this condemnation, who are, in a sense, free as a part of what evil is allowed to be going on in the earth, we know this because when, even when Jesus said to Peter, I'll build my church on this rock, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, so... I mean, we do know that there are spiritual forces of wickedness in this world, both human and supernatural, and God allows this to go on. It's not out from under his control, but the people who are engaged in it, what Peter is saying is, and Paul says the same thing really was, you know, if any man destroy the temple of God, what does he say? Him shall God destroy. You can mark it down. Jesus loves his church. It's exactly what he said to the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? What's the next word? You know it? Why are you persecuting my church? Did he say that? What did he say? Anybody know? Me. So his body, the Lord takes this incredibly personally. He's not going to miss this. In fact, he says this Complete reversal is going to be so powerful that when it occurs, whether in this life, partially, or in the next, it is going to be just like dumb animals. We had a text message here the other day from our son that's in Indiana, and his wife is expecting their first child. Uh, I think that, that one's due the 1st of July, maybe. Is that July or she's the July one? Okay. We've got two of them right now. But anyway, they decided it was too much going on with their first child, so Hazel was their cow. And then they had a heifer who was about as big as the mama. And Natalie, my daughter, I think they just decided too much going on. Hazel's, Hazel's bread and Hazel's dew right about the time the baby's coming. And that's kind of her bailiwick. She takes care of the animals. I think she just thought that it was too much. Well, you know what? When they loaded Hazel up, or the heifer, whichever one, I think they sold Hazel. I think the other one went, you know what, to the freezer. When they load up an animal like that, and I can tell you this many a time, it used to go through my, my thought processes all the time. There where I was in Huntington, Pennsylvania, you know, I would be up on the Route 22, which one of the, was the main east-west artery, and I'd be coming down into town. 
I always wanted to avoid the main street that a lot of people took just because you could get caught by a train there. There were 50-some trains a day came through Huntington. And you had a good chance of getting stopped by the train. So I always took this shortcut because it allowed, or not a shortcut, but I took this way because I didn't have to cross any train tracks. As soon as you came down onto, it was either 9th or 10th Street off of Route 22, there was Brenneman's Meat Market. And you'd pull down there and you'd see a guy with a pickup, you'd see a pickup truck parked with a trailer behind it that had maybe four or six cows in it. And you kind of thought to yourself, okay, they have no clue. I mean, it, it is what it is. They have no clue. And I won't get into the process of what happens next, but you know it's like animals being led to the slaughter. So this is going to happen to these people. This is scary stuff, folks. Uh, don't want to take a lot of time to it, but you know, every once in a while, God sees fit to do a little of this and show it to us, to let us know he's not asleep at the switch. And I have a just a couple of quick examples for you. Um, there's not going to be anybody here this morning that doesn't know the name John Lennon. Well, do you know, some years before he was ultimately shot, he gave an interview to American Magazine. In that interview, he said this, Christianity will end, it will disappear. I do not have to argue about that, I am certain. Jesus was okay, but his subjects were too simple. Today we are more famous than him. That was 1966. Well, you know what happened to him. Six bullets ended his life. I don't rejoice in that. I'm just telling you, you can't play the sin game and win. The destroyers are destroyed. The man who built the Titanic, someone was asking him about the Titanic. And a reporter was asking him how safe the Titanic really was. The man who built it said, not even God can sink it. So it's not a laughing matter, but I'll use an English expression. God's going to have the last laugh. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. God will not be mocked. All right, we have to move on. The wrongdoers are wronged. Where do we see that? See that in the very next verse. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. So they love wrongdoing, and what happens? Wrongdoing comes right back like a boomerang to strike them. And as I mentioned to you here, it, there's a rather striking wordplay here. comes right out of the word unrighteous in verse number 9. God knows how to keep the unrighteous. You see it translated here, wrongdoing, so you don't sense that, although you do see wrongdoing used a couple of times. If I were going to fight for a way, because again, the passive voice is used, and it's a little awkward to render it into English, but if I were looking for a way to paraphrase this to try to show you the wordplay on, on unrighteousness and bring out the sense of this boomerang, I might say something like, becoming unrighteousness, becoming unrighteous as a reward of unrighteousness. You see what I'm talking about with the boomerang? You can love unrighteousness, but unrighteousness will come back to bite you. And that's what's going on and what he's talking about here. So let's delve into this with what time we have left. Verse 13 has that wordplay in it. What is this conduct that, that he characterizes as unrighteousness that's going to come back to bite them? The wrongdoers are wronged. Well, have a look. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. To revel is to live luxuriously. This is 
wantonness. There's a word the King James Version uses. We don't use it as much today. But this is reveling, living luxurious. And so we see that here. But it says, and this is, I think maybe is the crucial detail, you know, you, you might say that it's bad enough that they are living luxuriously or reveling in, in things that aren't right, but catch the detail. They're doing it in the daytime. And that's the significant detail here to ratchet this up to another whole level because, as I say here, even in Roman society, to be doing these things in the daytime was considered a, an indication of degeneracy. And so you have the verse like 1 Thessalonians 5, 7. It says, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk in the night. And, and we know this, right? Men love darkness rather than light. And the nighttime is when, it, not exclusively, but a lot of it really manifests itself because people think somehow they can hide. Or you have Peter's reaction to this when on the day of Pentecost, they were accused of being drunk. And it's like Peter's horrified. Do you ever wonder why he's so horrified by this? He says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Because that would be sort of an indication of an accusation of real degeneracy or debauchery. And Peter just categorically denies that. Well, that's what's going on with these people. And he even mentions the love feasts. Notice in the verse, it's bad enough that you're doing this stuff in the daytime, but then to be going to the Christian love feasts and doing this kind of thing is really bad. And then you go on and it says, Peter... Again, he doesn't pull any punches. They're blots, they're blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They're so bad, verse 14 says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable, and it's literally unceasing uh, for sin. Unceasing. In other words, this is so bad, and I don't, I don't want to park here because it's just kind of unsavory. They can't look at a woman without thinking and seeing the wrong things. That's how bad these people are. And then it goes on to say they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. And I mentioned to you that this word trained is actually the, the word in the original we get our, our English gym from. So what do you do if you go to the gym? Well, you work out. And a lot of times one of the things you do at the gym is you're trying to condition yourself. You're trying, lots of times you're trying to get in better shape. So you, you, you achieve a certain tone, so to speak, with your body and a certain level of performance that maybe you want to achieve. And you become conditioned by the, that exercise that you do. That's what he's saying here. They become conditioned by this evil that they indulge in to the point that this lust and greed just makes them into monsters. They're conditioned by it. They have hearts trained in greed. And then Peter says at the end, it's almost like they don't know or don't care. I mean, you are in a bad way, folks. Think about this. You are in a bad way when you don't know and don't care that in, in, the, in the final analysis, they are under the curse of God. They're an accursed brood, accursed children. They're under God's curse. Verses 3 and 9 again, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Verse 9, they're kept to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And there's a practical takeaway from this. In the end, immorality doesn't reward, it robs. See, that's not what the devil does. He always comes to present the glamour. Doesn't show you the gloom or the 
And so next week we're going to see the next two or final two reversals. But I ask you this question, you can take this away. So do we begin to see just how serious God is about sin and judgment? Proverbs 14.9 says, Fools make a mock at sin, but among the righteous there is favor. That's the King James Version of that. Okay. Hope something I said today was a blessing. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you will bless us. Help us to give care about our lives, knowing that sin is deadly. And we pray, Father, that we'll do all that we can to avail ourselves of your grace, cast ourselves upon your mercy daily, come to the house of God where we can find fellowship and food for our souls in order that we might be growing strong Christians because we realize in this evil world and with a fallen nature, our best defense is always a strong offense. And so help us to be doing exactly what Peter says, that we're adding these things constantly, looking to grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.